0: Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB. Just joking. This is Kate, the editor at large. And I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hey, Medea. Hi. And Eric's not here.
1: Eric is not here. He sprained his wrist and maybe did something to his foot. We sounds wish like him well.
0: A, yeah. Sounds like a... Weightlifting casualty,
1: I know I don't know what's what's up. I hope he wasn't too upset by Glenn Close not winning the Oscar, but that was from him flinging down the remote <laughs> so
0: hard when it <laughs> happened that he that he broke his wrist from yeah, from his banging the walls when but he said he was also very happy when. Olivia Coleman when she won.
1: Right. So maybe that's when he hurt his foot. Because, right. Because like, he jumped up. And- <laughs> he jumped
0: so high for joy.
1: <laughs> um, sorry, Eric, to make light of your injury, but we hope that you get better and that we'll see you next week. Yes. In the meantime, we are here to introduce our next show. Our show today.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yes, and today we're speaking with Johanna Faitman and Amy Shoulder about their new edited collection of the controversial feminist Andrea Dworkin, which is called
1: Last Days at Hot I had a really fun time reading Andrea Dworkin. I had a great
0: time reading it. Yeah, oh yeah. It was new to me, actually. I'd I'd never read her before. And I didn't have... Because I wasn't that familiar with her, I also didn't have a bias going in like, oh, God, this is, I shouldn't be reading this and enjoying it. This is bad. I think a lot of
1: what she said is very uh, relevant. Yeah, I agree. Part of the conversation that we had with Johanna and Amy was about taking feminism seriously. Andrea Dworkin really believing in the many things that she wrote about. And we recently got a book at the office called Feminist Baby. And mm-hmm. I just thought that was a really feminist good Feminist baby. Oh, is raising a feminist baby? It's a picture book for babies called Feminist Baby that has a baby on the cover wearing a bib that says he's a feminist too. <laughs> and it's a picture book. There's some sentences uh-huh. in it. Feminist Baby seems to eat and twirl. It's okay for him to twirl as part of the message. And he's assured that it's okay to cry. Which, as far as I know, all babies think it's okay to cry. (laughs) Um, Wow, yeah. So we've gone further down the spiral of people not taking some things seriously. That's
0: true. I mean, pretty much anything can be commodified because even recently I saw a um, advertisement. It was like a tourist advertisement, like see climate change up close. Come to Canada. (gasps) I saw that too. <laughs> and I was like, wow, how how could they do that? It yes. doesn't seem like a good way to market it. But nevertheless, and I knew this before, there's nothing that can't be commodified, but the more radical, the better. And I, and I think Dworkin is someone who resists that, her brand of feminism resists those happy little baby books um, more than others. So it's cool to read someone who's radical.
1: Agreed. Let's get to the conversation.
0: Great.
2: We're excited to have Johanna Fateman and Amy Shoulder with us in the studio today to talk about their new edited volume of Andrea Dworkin's feminist writing with the wonderful title, Last Days at Hot Slit. Johanna is a writer and musician whose art criticism has appeared in the New Yorker and Art Forum. You may also know her, as I deeply fangirl do, as a member (laughs) alongside J.D. Sampson and Kathleen Hanna of the queer feminist electro-rock band La Tigre. Amy is a renowned visionary writer and editor whose work at the Feminist Press, Verso, City Lights, Seven Stories, and Serpent's Tale, among other publishers, promoted and in many ways launched the careers of some of the most forward-thinking and enduring writers of our contemporary moment. She has published work by Pathbreakers including Karen Finley, Sapphire, Justin Vivian Bond, Mary Gateskill, and David Wanyorovich. Which I have to give credit to Kate for teaching me how to say that name.
0: <laughs> <laughs> not quite there, but <laughs> she,
2: there's always room for improvement. Yeah. She also serves as the board president of the Lambda Literary Foundation here in Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Amy and Johanna. Hi.
3: Thank you. Hi.
2: Okay, so first, Johanna, let's start with you. I want to give listeners a bit of background on who Andrea Dworkin is because she's a name that's kind of lost to contemporary feminism except as something of like a sex-negative boogeyman. So can you talk a little bit about Dworkin's emergence as a feminist voice and also her involvement in what we call the sex wars of the 1980s?
4: Sure. As you said, Dworkin is sort of synonymous with anti sex and anti porn feminism. And part of our idea with this book is to expand the understanding of her writing. In fact, she was a poet as a teenager and young adult in her 20s, very active in anti war radical actions. And she discovered feminism when she was living in Amsterdam in her 20s through sort of the first germinal second wave texts. And when she arrived in New York by 1972, she was beginning to write a book called Woman Hating, which became not a famous book, but I think an influential feminist book in that moment. It was notable at the time for Well, she did begin discussing pornography in that book, though it's not the sole focus of it. And then I think what's really important about her later is that she was willing to talk about the sexual violence of her own experience and her own life at a time when really the prevalence of rape and sexual abuse is just coming to the surface. And her first brief marriage in Amsterdam was very abusive and she ended up running for her life. So, an analysis of that marriage in a feminist context is one of the fundamental themes of her writing.
1: And, Amy, I wanted to ask you, what brought you to Dworkin's work?
3: Well, really, Johanna brought me to the work. Yeah. I was, when I was editorial director at the Feminist Press in 2012 or 13, I think, I was dreaming up an anthology that would become the title, which was Icon, and my idea was to ask some favorite writers who there, to give us a private view on a public person, someone they are fascinated by, someone they've been obsessed with, and to offer that kind of analysis. And... When I went to Johanna, because I really loved her work and the way she thought about things, and she proposed writing an essay on Andrea Dworkin, it was just exactly what I wanted. I was getting from other writers people they loved, obsessions that were really positive for figures who were basically adored by others. And I thought what I was interested in, what informed my interest was really about obsessions with figures who are complicated and who force us or bring us the task of having to hold many truths at one time in order to think about their contributions, in order to think about our own interests in what they do for better and for worse.
0: And to the both of you, I'm curious... When Dworkin first emerged, how was she perceived by other second-wave feminists? And what was her place in, she seems like she's a big fan of Sholemoth Firestone and Kate Millett, and she had relationships with Ellen Willis and others. Was she accepted at first? Did people laud her ideas? And then slowly she moved to the more extreme end of things? Or what was her initial relationship to other feminists? She was
4: always aligned with, Radical feminism, so not the now feminism of Betty Friedan. So she was very much, at least in her mind, following in the footsteps of Shalama Firestone, Kate Millett, the Red Stockings in New York. I would say that because she came on the scene a little late, that wasn't exactly her peer group, but figures such as Robin Morgan and Gloria Steinem did become people that she was friends with and worked with throughout the following decades, and many of her articles and even books began as commissioned articles for Ms. Magazine when Steinem was the editor.
2: Johanna, I want to talk a little bit about, effectively, and maybe this is not a fair way to characterize it, but Andrea Dworkin's Fall from Grace, which seems to me really to be when she kind of enters in the scene of lesbian feminism around the late 1970s and the early 1980s, it's like she's kind of more or less with the group. It does seem to be when she goes into this anti-pornography, or rather, I should say, a critique of pornography and a critique of sex work and all other kinds of things, including BDSM practice in the lesbian community, that's when she seems to encounter some real friction. And then in, I believe it's 1983, when she commits what I think would be the ultimate sin in that community, which is allying effectively with the right on an anti-pornography ordinance, which obviously she had very different perspectives on pornography and what was wrong with it than the right did. I don't think that she's quite as anti-sex as we've often thought of her. But can you talk about how she navigated that moment? Because it seems like in your beautiful introductory essay, you talk about how she kind of makes a series of terrible choices in terms of her activism and politics?
4: Your summary of that moment, I think is really good and accurate. And there really are two separate but related issues Mm. with Dworkin. One would be her analysis of pornography in her texts, which is what I am personally really interested in as a writer and as an art critic. And then there's her activism, which, was very contentious at the time. Her strategies in terms of not just legislation, but also picketing venues for pornography, her affiliation with Women Against Pornography, which was a very militant anti-pornography group. These were really tough positions to take at a moment when a whole other kind of trajectory of second wave feminism was concerned with sexual liberation Mm -hmm. and the possibilities for women to make porn, to engage in BDSM, to be proud of that, to cast off stigma and shame around women's sexuality, both queer and straight. So it's a fascinating time in feminist history and a very painful time. I mean, if you talk to yeah. people who were involved on either side, I should also say I think there's more than two sides, but people remember this as a painful time of broken relationships and friendships and bad blood that was very damaging to the sense of there being a cohesive women's
0: movement. Maybe you could just explain what Dworkin's theory of porn was. Why was she so against it beyond the obvious?
4: In the wake of the so-called sexual revolution, Dworkin saw the growth of the pornography industry as a counter to women's political gains.
3: I think she was also, the understanding, the reading about her is that she watched a lot of pornography to become informed about what, it was and she presumably looked at a lot of very mainstream male-made i mean it was all male-made at that mm-hmm. time pornography and had a theory that it was really propaganda to indoctrinate men into ideas about sex particular ideas about sex and to normalize and encourage violence against women by showing a kind of very rote fantasy over and over again, yeah. with just kind of different sets or different tropes. I mean, she connected to the Holocaust,
1: <laughs> right? Which Amy is sort of yeah, ruefully shaking her head. Yeah,
3: she connected the idea of porn as pornography to the way propaganda was used mm-hmm. in World War II.
2: Actually, I'm wondering if we can use this because one of the things that strikes me when I read Dworkin. Is a kind of affective exchange that I always have with people whose ideas I find very illuminating, but whose sometimes their mode of expression or where they take that idea, I find disappointing. And so I'm wondering for both of you, like, what's it like reading Dworkin? Because she does have a style that is very unique to it's, just her.
3: Yeah, it's riveting. Right?
2: Yeah. I feel when you read Dworkin, it's like somewhere between she is reckless and wild in a way that can be very exciting, but yet she's also maddeningly astute. It's like the killjoy that's saying the thing that you need to hear, but you're like, I don't, you're not doing it in the way that I want. So can you guys talk a little bit about what it's like to read Dworkin?
4: The whole reason that I came to her, began to revisit her, is because as a teenager, I found her Writing style completely intoxicating. I just had never read anything like it. I found the combination of her extreme, unapologetic views and her willingness to, I mean, swear. <laughs> that doesn't <laughs> sound like a big deal, but to, you know, open a feminist book and have it read about. Talking, you know, in those terms was very, seems seemed extremely bold to me. She writes like someone who has nothing to lose and Mm -hmm. it's really inspiring. And then you have to, you know, think about actually what do you agree with and is this rhetorical style actually leading you down a path of like, is she overstating things? What's really going on with her ideas? But I personally... I think that Dworkin's analysis of things is mostly right. Yeah, I don't necessarily, or I don't at all agree with her conclusions about what should be done about things. So, you know, she's a very frustrating
3: person for me.
2: Is that also true for you, Amy? Do you find it similarly insightful and yet sometimes frustrating?
3: Yeah, as Johan and I were rereading these works and discussing what to include and how we felt about each Work. it was just like this complete revelation over and over again how astute her analysis is, how relentless her feminism is, how she was able to take these personal experiences that were treacherous and develop these epic concepts around what it's like to be a woman in America and that she could articulate so boldly and across all these different modes in a way, right? So she was yeah. writing speeches that were rhetorically brilliant and persuasive. She was writing studies on intercourse, which has become like this lightning rod for you know her supposedly saying all sex is rape when really it was a study of heterosexuality in literature right. in which she could come to that conclusion in the writing that she was looking at. Anyway, I think that the way she could chronicle this epic misogyny was really startling to us. And for me, the revelation of reading her fiction, reading Mercy, reading Fire and Ice, Mm. which are so masterful in how she uses language and how what her sentence structure is. Mercy is like... I mean, it's like Faulkner, if Faulkner were a lesbian feminist.
2: (laughs) We can hope.
3: (laughs) There was so much there. And the shocker of encountering this work, which I really had paid very little attention to coming up as a feminist in the 80s because of what I understood to be the Dworkin stance— you know, the shocker that there was so much here as a way of thinking about and talking about radical feminism that could apply to our lives and could be applied to our culture now, which brings me to what I have found so amazing about publishing this book now is that we have been working on this and talking about this for several years. And I was just talking with Hedy Culti, our editor at Semiotext and he was saying I mean we're so thrilled that we're getting the kind of attention that's brought us to for example this forum to talk about the book and other reviews are forthcoming and major publications that we're really excited about and the fact that Dworkin is so essential to the current conversations now is really everything about what she had done
0: You are listening to the Larb Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Amy Shoulder and Johanna Fateman, editors of *Last Days at Hot Slip*, a new collection of Andrea Dworkin's writing. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation.
1: have Sam Lipsight in the studio with us today. Sam's most recent book is Hark, which is his most recent novel, though he's the author of many, many books. Sam is here to recommend a book for us today. Sam, what book are you going to recommend?
5: I'm going to recommend a book called... uh, It has three titles.
1: Okay, intriguing. Go on. It's
5: called Louder Milk, or The Real Poet, or The Origin of the World. And it's by Lucy Ives and uh, it's a really wonderful send-up of the MFA well it takes place at the Iowa MFA program in about 2003 and a sort of a young poet arrives who takes the the place by storm but there's a secret about him that that is uh, revealed to the community over time that is shocking and quite funny
4: oh
1: Lucy Ives, I think, is actually a friend of the magazine, I think um, so. and we've published her before. And she's wonderful. So it's very. So it's to it's hear. just
5: a very it's hilarious. It's brilliant, and she does these kind of great parodies of some of the students' work in the uh-huh. in the book. There's an incredible amount of uh, intelligence and skill in the writing. I was just really blown away by it.
1: You yourself teach in an MFA program. Did yes. you recognize uh, some familiar uh, types?
5: Yeah. I mean, some, some things rang very true, but I don't teach in a poetry program, so mm-hmm. it was a little different.
1: Less contentious, I bet. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Sam, tell us again the many titles of the book and the author.
5: Louder Milk, or The Real Poet, or The Origin of the World by Lucy Ives.
1: Thank you so much. That was a book recommendation by Sam Lipsight. His most recent book is Hark, a novel.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Amy Shoulder and Johanna Fateman, editors of Last Days at Hot Slit, a new collection of Andrea Dorkin's writing.
3: Um, Actually,
1: just to follow up on that, why do you think that she has become essential now, uh, maybe in a way that she might not have been, you know, maybe 10 years ago? or so or three years or three years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. uh, right. (laughs) What's, what's the difference?
4: Well, I mean, I think that, you know, we're obviously living through a terrible time and, you know, when Amy and I started this project, we certainly didn't foresee, you know, Trump's election. We didn't foresee the me too movement. And if you see these kinds of things through the lens of Dworkin's writing, it makes a terrifying kind of sense. Mm. I mean, the work that women began to do in the mid-70s around sexual assault and sexual harassment in some ways was considered, you know, finished business. Like, we've made progress on these things. And now there's, you know, a new period of revelation where we, we see that No, it's still incredibly prevalent. Men in power abuse their power. And there's kind of a new generation of women talking to each other and challenging the power structure. So in some ways, it's like it feels very like a continuous, (laughs) like, like she's here with us, you know, like we're picking back up on her life's work when we need it.
3: And I also think that she's, you know, she, like many feminists, have shown how cultural attitudes encourage men toward violence. But what she was also so challenging in doing is showing how women are encouraged to endure it. They're encouraged to silence one another and not support one another. And her, I think part of one of her crusades was to... Break that chain in particular. Yeah,
1: there's this passage that really struck me that I think is maybe even in just the first piece that you include in this book where she says, you know, every woman who is, and this is a paraphrase and it won't have the power that her text actually has, but um, every woman who is living well is living well essentially by standing on the belly of another or stepping on the belly of another, which, um, and I remember that one particular phrase. And it really struck me as something that I had not really seen articulated as explicitly in feminist texts before. I mean, part of that is, you know, wading through a Judith Butler text to get to uh, something like that would take some time. So, So that really struck me and felt particularly prescient in many ways.
0: And so what happens to, so we covered a little bit that she comes out with this activism against porn and she sides with so was the anti-porn group a right wing group that, that you mentioned?
3: It was the Mies Commission, which yeah. was appointed by Reagan. Mm-hmm. So it was the worst possible alliance right. a feminist could make.
0: And and then what happens to her career? You know, does she she can obviously continue to write quite a bit, so is she is she still, you know, lecturing to other feminists or is she just writing kind of on her own after that?
4: Well, I mean, it, it certainly wasn't, you know, her the position she took, it wasn't like she was the only one. There was a whole faction of women who supported this. Well, not just women. A whole faction of activists were interested in legislation. And we actually, in the book, we purposely don't include a lot of writing about her legislation because that's, that is the material that I find is most often cited in discussions of the feminist sex wars of the 80s. Yeah. So I didn't think that would be particularly illuminating to people. It's nothing so simple as she became a total pariah. She maintained a presence both in feminist activism and also as a larger than life caricature of a man hater. So there were cartoons of her and Hustler. So it's not like she made this terrible error and she disappeared, but it raised the stakes of this particular divide within the feminist movement.
2: Yeah, I also, um Johanna, as you're saying that it's like one of the things that And I wonder what both you and Amy think about this, that I've always found useful about Dworkin, particularly as you were saying in this moment, is that she is not a a writer and a thinker who practices a politics of affirmation, right? And I wonder if that was part of the problem that she had at this particular moment, that the thing that can be, what we tend to like as individuals, in other words, is like somebody that tells us, oh, your desires are good, like you've been told that these desires are bad and this is particular particularly true, I think, within the history of like queer affect in the U.S. But that she's kind of, especially with things like BDSM, right? That you want to see it as liberation. And Dworkin is always pointing you to the thing <laughs> and that kind of like, um, similar to like what Sarah Ahmed will call the feminist killjoy, right? She tells you that it's like, no, you actually need to think about that more. It's not just liberation just because it feels good or you're into it. And I wonder if one of the enduring legacies of Dworkin is the willingness to not affirm but rather to sit in critique even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's not the kind of happy place to be on the left. So just kind of wondering what you guys think about her kind of negativity as a recuperative thing
4: I, I mean, absolutely you know I in the introduction, I talk about Alan Willis reviewing Dworkin 's book pornography men Mm -hmm. possessing women and you know I love Ellen Willis I think her writing is brilliant but in a way what she says in that review is that Dworkin's book is too depressing
2: (laughs) (laughs) right right
4: and and it's like why can't we be depressing like why do you have to put the book down and and feel hopeful (laughs) that's not Dworkin's state of mind about the issue and that's not the book she was trying to write she was trying to sound an alarm and also reflect the reality at least as she saw it of the pornography industry and how it was affecting women and their intimate lives so that can certainly be said about most if not all of Dworkin's books that it's You're absolutely right. It's not feel-good material, and she challenges everyone. I would say, you know, there's one thing about particularly her critiques of BDSM. It's not often noted that she, you know, because she is seen as so judgmental, but in her writing, there's also an acknowledgement that she has experienced that, that she has romanticized submission in her sex life, and that she has come to, you know, reject that. So she does, it's hidden in there, but if you read her extensively, you'll see that she believes that it's possible to change your sexuality in some ways. Mm. And I don't know, you know, I'm not saying people should try to change their sexualities, but she, you know, she believed this was something that one could do and that was it was worth doing um, to find a way out of sort of male dominance. Yeah. Sexually, culturally, socially, politically.
0: Right. I mean, it also seemed like her writing, I love just the first line of the of woman hating, which is, you know, she's basically saying like, this is not just a academic exercise. Like this book is a revolution. And, (laughs) you know, just from out of the bat, there's, it doesn't seem like it's just pure critique. She really does want things to change and how else would you change things, but with some kind of action. So that's something that's really exciting about her work. I think she's so galvanizing.
1: I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you both, did you experience any fallout from people who might not have agreed with you taking this these texts back up? Was, was there anybody who sort of objected to this? This is to, I I, no either has, you or me. Sorry, go ahead.
4: I mean, I think that probably as the book comes out, we'll get some <laughs> objections. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that most people, um, whether they agree with, working or not, and most people disagree with her that I know, um, are pretty intrigued by the proposition that there might be something to look at in her work now.
3: I think the fact that it was Johanna and I who took up this project made a difference as well because it was so not an obvious choice given right. both of our track records and the kind of work we do and the kind of feminists we support. So I think that we had some advantage there that at least the people that have learned about this project, it's mostly been through us Mm -hmm. um, or our publisher. So I've gotten a lot of surprise. I've told people who had been targets of Dworkin, who had been Mm -hmm. targets of Dworkin knights. That's what they were called, Dworkinites, who, you know, really were followers and fans and admirers of her work and who could often be quite cutting to people who weren't, to feminists who weren't. So I've gotten like, what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have to see that to believe it. You know, friends like Dorothy Allison, who had been, you know, at the Barnard, you know, conference in... In In 1982, right? In 1982 and had, you know, really been working against that Kind of very particular kind of feminism that she that was shutting down conversation about mm-hmm. sex and this, feminism. Oh, just
2: as a brief historical note, all of the Dworkinites were actually banned from entering that particular conference at Barnard, right? And so they had to stage this protest outside. So it was like physically they were barred from even participating.
3: And this was a sex conference at Barnard.
2: Uh, yeah, I forget exactly the name. I think it was like the conference like, on sex.
3: It was about like, and there was a book later called Powers of Desire, I yeah, believe, right. about the um, papers that were given there. And so I look forward to, you know, these conversations where that it has been unexpected. What, what was really nice for us is that the rights holder of all this work is, is John Stoltenberg, who was uh, Andrea's partner. And he was well aware that we did not fully, wholeheartedly embrace everything about Dworkin and that we had a critique and we had an interest that was expansive and not only in full embrace. And he has been very interested in this kind of reconsideration of of Dworkin and has really been able to step aside and, and let this work kind of unfold.
2: Um, and just as a way of kind of wrapping up, I'm wondering, even though this is impossible to know, but uh, Johanna, especially since you've been kind of saturated and swimming in Dworkiniana um, for a while,
4: <laughs> if, I, if
2: I can be allowed a neologism, uh, but since you've been kind of swimming in this material, I do wonder, what do you think Dworkin would feel about feminism at this moment because it, it, it just historically it's like she's the the moment where we shift towards third wave um and kind of choice feminism and i wonder what would dworkin feel about that that movement
4: about third wave feminism or about
2: or contemporary feminism, kind of where we are now, right? Like, would she would she be all about the kind of pink pussy hats and the and the women's <laughs> I march? I
4: think she would love the pussy I hats. I don't think so. <laughs> I think she would think we're really fucking up and not yeah. taking yeah. the situation seriously enough.
3: Yeah, she, I think she would um, see that this whole conversation around consent is just... Sure. Yeah, that's like pussyfooting around you know that's like it's not just about consent it's not just about yes or no that doesn't address what women's real experience
2: right
3: is and
0: with me too do you think she would at least be excited about that well i mean no?
4: she's oh she was always ready to identify with victims and to you know try to represent that voice in our culture um you know because she she consistently spoke about her own experiences um sort of without shame and she it, it's hard to imagine her criticizing a woman who's coming forward yeah so I, I think she absolutely would be supportive of these kinds of challenges um to male power i think that she wouldn't deem our current sprawling, <laughs> diffuse feminism. She wouldn't consider that revolutionary, right, or or adequate to the mo- to the situation we're in. Mm. Yeah, it's funny because it seems like
1: uh, as as you both were saying that um, with the with the rise of uh, her relevance and her the revolutionary and radical sort of stance that she took, we've coupled that with a kind of diluted form of feminism that appears every, sort of everywhere you know, at once and truly appears no, kind of nowhere, you know, with sort of with feminist T-shirts and slogans. And, you know, we got a book in the office the other day that it's pink and and purple, and it says the future is feminist. And the text inside is pink. And I was just like, can somebody take something fucking seriously for one second. <laughs> um, so it's, it's it's an odd juxtaposition that we have these days. Mm-hmm. Sorry, well, there yeah. was a rant, sorry. And, <laughs> and perhaps then, to close <laughs> it out,
2: perhaps then this means there is no better time to actually look back at the work of Andrea Dworkin to yes. learn the things that we have willed ourselves almost to forget.
4: Okay. That's a wonderful way to conclude. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, so we have been speaking with Amy Shoulder and Johanna Fatman, editors of the new book *Last Days at Hot Slit: The Radical Feminism of Andrea Dworkin*. Thank you both so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having
1: Thank us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: You've been listening to the Larb Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The Larb Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.